Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to continue to look at the Gospel according to St. Mark, this time the fifth chapter, the 21st to the 43rd verses. Included in this gospel, there are two dramatic stories of healing. Um, the first is the healing of the woman who had hemorrhaged for, for 12 years. And the second is the, um, the story of the raising of the daughter of Jairus. So it is, it is kind of in this series of Mark and Gospels that we're kind of getting a clearer picture of who Jesus is and a clearer picture of what this whole mission is all about that he's on. It isn't like, uh, you know, he just he just somehow or other, um, this is just a good time for him to show up in, in the human story and uh, perform some miracles to, uh, to enhance his credibility, then suffer, die, rise from the dead, and then become pure spirit for the rest of the time that we're around on the earth. That's, that's not what the gospel does. And so this gives us a great opportunity then in these series of gospels to see, well, then what is it that he is doing? Who is he? And that's what the apostle said in the, in the gospel that precedes this passage when he calms the raging sea, when he, when he and, and with the apostles in the boat, calms the stormy sea exactly as the word of God calmed the stormy primordial sea, the abyss um, the raging salt sea waters and so forth in the very first verse of, of the chapter of the book of Genesis. So that connection now is made. It's made in the calming of the sea. The connection is made between the word and John assures us that Jesus is the word. He was in the beginning with God and was God and, bef- and through him all things came to be and without him nothing is and he became flesh and dwelt among us, and the flesh of the word that dwells among us is, of course, the person of Jesus Christ. And so he demonstrates that in the last section of the Gospel of Mark, where just as I said in the very beginning, when the word of God was that which calms the raging primordial sea, the raging primordial chaos, he then identifies himself with the word and identifies himself with the creative force of the earth, Then we move from there, for this gospel begins when Jesus had crossed in the boat to the other side. That's what we were talking about in the the calming of the sea. Jesus said, let's cross to the other side. Obviously, there was a reason to cross to the other side, and obviously we're going to see what some of that reason is right now in this gospel. So he gets to the other side after the storm, after he calms the storm. He gets to the other side of the sea, and then there's a large crowd that gathers around him, and he stayed by the lakeside. Um, others had known that, uh, that, he was, um, that he was going to cross the sea, and so they tried to follow him, apparently turned back by the storm, but may well have come around the lake on foot or come over basically after the storm had subsided. So then one of the synagogue officials came up to him, Jairus by name, and seeing him fell at his feet and pleaded with him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is desperately sick. Do come and lay your hands on her to make her better and save her life. And Jesus went with him 
and a large crowd followed him, and they were pressing all around him. This right now is a beginning as a dramatic introduction. Jairus is obviously, as, an, as a synagogue official, a very, very important local personage, and his approaching of Jesus may well be some of the cause for the crowd, because people are wondering now with this very prominent synagogue official, why is he approaching Jesus? Why is he approaching the teacher? And when he comes, however, he fell at his feet and pleaded with him earnestly. Unthinkable that the very prominent local official um, is, is approaching this itinerant preacher, and, uh, and as so doing, not only does he make a request of him, but he falls at his feet and he pleads with him. We're led to believe then in some way that in the midst of the crisis of his own life, Jairus is willing to put aside the accruements and the trappings of his possession, and in so doing to have only on his mind the well-being of his daughter. This to us says something significant too, because this to us says that Jairus was probably a very good man, because his daughter becomes more important to him. His daughter's well-being becomes more important to him than he is himself. For he takes a great risk at doing this to, for his prestige and his position. And, and so in so doing, then, um, he is, makes a dramatic sign. And that's why in, eventually Jesus is going to tell him to continue to believe. Because obviously, Jairus has some kind of belief that Jesus is Lord. So that he pleads with him and falls at his feet, humbling himself, therefore, before an itinerant preacher from Galilee. And he tells him why he has done that. Because his daughter, his little daughter, he says, is desperately ill. And he has, expresses his confidence that Jesus can come and lay hands on her and make her better and save her life. So this is the first piece of the gospel then. The next part of the gospel is, and it says, a large crowd followed Jesus because he went with him. Now, the next part is what happens to him on the way to Jairus' home, to the healing of the girl. And that is, there was a woman who suffered from a hemorrhage for 12 years. After long and painful treatment under various doctors, she had spent all she had without being any better for it. In fact, she was getting worse. When we talk about, you know, first century medicine, um, and there, there certainly are going to be some severe limitations on to what their ability is. Um, I don't know what first century medication is, uh, medis medical treatment is all about. Luke, of course, was himself a physician. He treats this passage actually more gently than Mark does. Um, he simply says no one was able to help her. But Mark is pretty adamant the doctors were not able, the physicians were not able to help her. And she spent everything she had trying to be cured, and none of it worked. So she then thinks to herself, I'm desperate for 12. And remember also now that she, as having this flow of blood for 12 years, is unclean. 
and uh, therefore has the obligation to avoid the crowds and to stay by herself and away from the crowds. But instead, she mingles into the cloud, crowd, and this is why she's doing what she's doing kind of secretly. And she says to herself, you know, if I could just touch his cloak, if I could just touch his clothes, then, then I will be healed. There's, there's two things going on here. First of all, she does not want to be noticed or known because she's violating the social norms that apply to those who are unclean. And, uh, and as she does so then, um, she also wants not to be known even to Jesus because any kind of public recognition of her would put her in grave danger. But she then, but she also knows there's something about him. There's something more to him than there are to others. And that he is capable of great and powerful things. And she is taking the risk of being socially punished, of being punished by law, of being more ostracized and condemned than ever, in order that she might just touch the cloak of someone whom she knows is there's there's an old saying among the barbarian tribes of the north someone who's kind of more than merely human and uh, and that in the barbarian north was the criteria for kingship and and here it isn't the same kind of sense but it's a sense there's something more to this man than just being a human person there's something more there they don't know what it is exactly but they know that it's present and so she does touch his cloak, and she is immediately cured. But then something interesting happens. Jesus feels, senses that power has gone out from him. And so he turns around and he says, who touched me? And the disciples say, there's a whole crowd around you. Everybody's touching you. And, uh, and, and he ignores them, of course. And as he looked around, continued to look around, then the woman kind of revealed herself. She was frightened and trembling um, for a number of reasons. First of all, she had experienced a miraculous cure. But secondly, she was also in trouble socially if she is identified. And, uh, and she fell at his feet and told him that she confessed everything to him. And uh, wondering what would be the consequences, what kind of punishment she would receive for having been so bold to having violated all the social norms of her, of her society, of having taken a risk and by those standards of those days um, endangered other people to disease. You know, we, we ourselves think, well, you know, this is so harsh. You have to, you know, the unclean, they have to... Um, you know, that they have to keep themselves away from other people and so forth. Well, I think it'd be interesting to notice that in these times, in the days of very primitive medicine, um, they had an excessive sense of quarantine. Um, during the recent uh, COVID business, um, the idea of quarantine was uh, something we have not experienced for a very long time. Um, however, we did experience it in spades during this um, latest flu episode. And, um, and so what, what then happens is that um, 
they and we say you know that being unclean what an inhumane and so on and so forth and and yet we would not react quite so strongly were we were they to call it quarantine which is exactly what it is they had to quarantine because people did not know the nature of the disease and they suspected that almost all serious diseases were in some way shape or form communicable and therefore the only way to protect the rest of society is to isolate those who have them so the woman broke quarantine, we could say, to come out in public. And, uh, and Jesus, however, she's trembling, she's afraid f- because she broke quarantine. But also, what is he going to do? Because somehow or other, she feels like maybe she shouldn't have done what she did. But Jesus just looks at her and says, your faith has restored you to health. Go in peace and be free. Um, and so... The healing has healed not only the woman's physical affliction, but it has also healed her emotional anguish. And in healing her emotional anguish, he probably has set her on a path of greater health than just simply a physical cure. So this happens then on the way. But the interesting power goes out of him. You know, this is, we're, we're struggling here, actually, in the Gospels. We're struggling here with, with the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. Is Jesus' humanity simply a vehicle through which divinity passes in order to do the things that Jesus is able to do? Or is Jesus himself, as God, the source of those cures? And obviously, in the Gospels, it comes to the point where it is the source of the cures. It is an affirmation of that Jesus is both God and man. You know, and, and this is an important, this is very important for us. For we have other miracle workers in the world. We have other great teachers, and there was kind of a, 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 a f- fanatical trend back in the late 60s and early 70s to simply cast Jesus into the great social reformers. You find in certain places stained glass windows with Jesus, Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi, all that kind of thinking, all that kind of stuff that really, really is not, it, it's, it's, it's heretical. And, and, you know, that's a word that we can use and people make fun of it. But it's, it, 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 it really means that it's, it's not consistent church teaching. That in order to do that, it is saying that Jesus is a completely human and that whatever he does above that is through the grace and the power of God. And certainly we can say to many other great human beings, it seems that God moves them. It seems that grace provides them with insight and with authority and those kinds of things. Jesus is not one of them. And that's what's important now when he feels that power has gone out of him. It's coming out of him. He is not channeling the Father. And and he's realizing that within himself, he contains what his consciousness of, of who he was, we, we really don't know. And there's no way to really determine that. But I think one basic thing we could argue for, we could say, is that there was a sense within Jesus, at least this, of a vastness inside of himself, which was far greater than anything he could really know as a human person. 
And he happened to know, too, that it was not his humanity which was able to cure the woman. It was his divinity. It was from this great force, this great power within him. Gradually, gradually, we know that he comes to understand this as the Father and the Spirit. We see this beginning in the finding of the child Jesus in the temple. And we find it also as he goes off to pray in critical moments, to pray to the Father, to reunite with himself in a fuller sense of the way with the triune God. And so on the way now, on the way to the house of Jairus, this remarkable cure and this transformation of a woman's life takes place. And we are privy to see that Jesus is aware of himself as more than merely human. We know of his consciousness that much that there is something more in him than there is in other human persons. But while he was still speaking to the woman that he had cured, the gospel says, some people arrived from the house of the synagogue official to say, your daughter is dead, so don't put the master to any further trouble. Um, callous and cold and f- false goodwill Um, protecting the master from any kind of trouble when there's no use now because the girl has already died, shows a crassness and an indifference, both to the sensitivities and the feelings of the synagogue official of Jairus and to the identity of who Jesus really is. The crowd that is going to say this to him is dealing with him simply as a teacher or perhaps a miracle worker, but certainly not as the presence of the living God. But Jesus had overheard this remark, and they said to the official, he said to Jairus, don't be afraid, continue to believe, have only faith. And he allowed no one to go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And here again, we have kind of an interesting phenomenon. We have, in in critical and crucial moments in Jesus' ministry, we know that he is accompanied by the three, by Peter, James, and John. We also know that once again, you know, there's been this tendency to kind of explore the impact and the relationship of the Essene community with with the primitive Christianity. And here's another structural similarity. Whoever, whoever the priest was, whoever the great priest or teacher was in the, in, the, in the Qumran community, there was always three from those who followed him, from the twelve who were disciples. There was always three who kind of shared in the priesthood. It was understood that they took precedence over the other nine of, of the community, and the number was twelve, of course, for the twelve tribes of Israel. But of those, there was three who always were closer to the Messiah, closer to the high priest, and, and those who shared in some way in his priesthood more so than others. So when we find Peter, James, and John, the three out of the twelve, who are the ones who are with Jesus, whom he invites into the most significant moments of his ministry, um, we see flashes once again of an indication that there is a deeper relationship, one that, that one needs continued exploration. Um, certainly there is, uh, from Steubenville, there's John Bergsma who's doing this. Um, in one of the one of the standard and one of the most insightful and important ones over the years since the discovery of the scrolls was was the French Jesuit theologian Jean Danielou. 
um, who was the one who uncovered a great many of the connections between primitive Christianity and, and Qumran. But here we just catch a glimpse once again that there is some kind of relationality, some kind of impact, some kind of uh, influence. So they come to the official's house, and Jesus notices all the commotion. So the professional weepers and wailers and so forth are there to mourn the death of child. And he went into them, and calmly he says, Why all this commotion and crying? The child's not dead, but asleep. Um, and they laughed at him. Um, you know, once again, who does this man think he is? You know, he doesn't even, can't even tell when a person is dead or alive. And... Uh, and you can also imagine in the back of their mind, why in the world did Jairus drag him in here? You know, the girl's dead. So he, Jesus just told them to leave. And taking with him the child's father and mother and his three companions, he went into the place where the child lay. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I tell you, get up. And the little girl got up at once and began to walk about, for she was 12 years old. And at this they were overcome with astonishment. And he ordered them strictly not to let anyone know about it and told them to give her something to eat. So here is one of the three times in the Gospels that Jesus raises someone from the dead. And he does it in this case, it's interesting, he does it because someone humbled themselves before him, someone who socially was far above him, humbled himself before Jesus out of love for his daughter and out of belief that Jesus could do something to heal his daughter. Jesus then acknowledges this act of humility, this act of surrender to his power, his person, his presence. He goes with him and he, he endures the mocking of the crowd. In fact, as he simply expels them, and it's kind of like, you know, just get out of the way, actually. The, the silliness and the stupidity is, is, is just, it, it's inappropriate in a place like this. We find a lot of silliness and a lot of stupidity going on around Jesus and the world in which we live, both within the church and outside of the church. And in every case, I think it behooves us not to take it so seriously, um, but to turn instead with a clear, with a clear focus on the person of Jesus Christ, on who he is, both God and man, what he can accomplish in the midst of the world, and to, in humility and in faith, bring ourselves to him, kneel before him, and implore his help and his intercession in the great trials and difficulties of our lives. But here now, Jesus, now, now he shows something interesting too. Just as he manifested himself to be the word with the power over the primordial chaotic sea, over the abyss, over that constant lurking threat to creation and constant lurking threat to humanity. And he, with a simple word, be quiet, be still, is able to calm not only the primordial chaos, but also the manifestation of that chaos on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. Now, what is the greatest of all chaotic activities? What is the greatest force, the destruction of the human person that we can think of, that we, know, that we can experience? And that is death. 
And so Jesus then, not only does he have command over nature itself, over the primordial lurking chaos and and darkness that, that, that kind of follows humanity through history, but also its ultimate conquest. And the ultimate conquest of darkness and of chaos is death. For no matter how strong our faith, we realize and recognize that a particular mode of existence has been annihilated. A particular mode of existence is over. And where what we know about existence from then on becomes a matter of faith and not necessarily of knowledge. And so now that Jesus has come nature, Jesus now overcomes the consequences, the fruits of chaoticness of the realm, the power of triumph of chaos in our individual and personal lives. And so he raises her from the dead. And it's interesting now because we go from the Sea of Galilee to the humility of Jairus to the risk of the sick woman and now to the total overcoming of death itself. A prefiguration certainly of the resurrection of Jesus, something that the disciples, since Jesus was able to raise others, it should not have surprised them that he was able to raise himself, but they are not aware of that. And they even have a struggle with that. We know in the gospel, for instance, when it says that he appeared to them, they, they, they bowed down before him, but some doubted that this is a hard thing to grasp. A hard thing to grasp is coming back from the dead. You know, we have a whole cottage industry in the world of bringing the spirits of the dead back. The whole spiritualist movement, the the whole spiritualist movement, the whole... um, um, you know, the seances, the mediums, all that kind of stuff. Everybody, we have in the Gospels the witch of Endor who conjures up the spirit of Samuel. But it is not bringing the dead back to life. Whatever, whatever goes on in those kinds of things, I've, no one really knows, but it is not raising the dead. And that's what Jesus is able to do. He is able to overcome the consequences of death in the life of this child. So that his mark then struggles to reveal Jesus as the word of God, as the one through whom all things are made, as as kind of the source of creation itself. As he does that, he picks up all of these terms and all of these images from the Old Testament, and he brings them then into the life of Jesus, who then triumphs over those. And in his triumph over those, he triumphs over once again the primordial power of chaos, the power of the abyss. So as we reflect upon this gospel, let us reflect upon the person of Jesus, and let us reflect also upon the ways that people have approached that person, and in so doing, come in our own faith life to a deeper confidence and a deeper trust in the Lord and ask him to help us, like Jairus and the woman in the crowd, to kneel down before him and to beg for his mercy, his forgiveness, and his healing. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.
Sa 